Today is the fourth week of Advent, which means that we are getting closer and closer to Christmas Day, uh, which when I say that out loud, I gotta be honest, it sounds really weird for me. Uh, if I can be really, really honest with y'all, I think it's because I'm a graduate student for this reason. Um, I've been preparing for like my finals so much, been getting ready for all these exams that I feels like the Advent season, you know, we have for four candles, but it feels like the Advent season has just started for me. I don't know about you guys. It feels like I can finally settle into this Advent season. And maybe for others that are also students, maybe you can resonate. Or if you're a parent with kiddos, you can also resonate with that. That it just feels like it's an interesting way to start this Advent season. But whether you have been blaring Christmas music uh, since like Halloween or even earlier or Thanksgiving or whenever you start that, or if you're like me and it feels like you're finally now hopping on to this Advent train, I want to assure you guys that it's okay, <laughs> that you are here, um, and I'm glad that you guys are here. And there is still time to take those deep pauses and some deep breaths and make space for silence and anticipate the arrival of the baby Jesus. Every Christmas, I'm reminded of my neighborhood I grew up in uh, as a kid. I lived in a cul-de-sac, uh, which for me was as suburban as you get it. I mean, every house looked the exact same uh, with the two stories and a finished basement and some sort of Christmas lights outside of it with like a traditional uh, family snuggled in each and every one of them. Um, this was my life growing up until I was around 16. But at the end of our cul-de-sac was this ranch house. Um, this was occupied by an older man uh, without a twinkle of Christmas lights whatsoever. And our entire family, our entire neighborhood was almost made out exclusively of young families, except for this house. And I can't remember seeing this guy anywhere. I don't remember seeing him at any of our obnoxious, you know, block parties or any of... Um, sort of events, nor did he hang up any Christmas lights or give out any candy for Halloween. So as kids, he was like public enemy number one. We had no idea about this guy. He was suspicious by all accounts. So the kids of my block began to spread terrible, terrible, terrible rumors about this guy. Um, some of them were kind of mild, um, that he was a grumpy old guy that swung his cane at kids whenever they crossed his, you know, yard. Um, but some of them were just outright mean. Um, some of them called him like a drug dealer, um, an ex-convict, um, a creep. I mean, you get the picture, just horrible, horrible titles to throw on someone that we had never met. Uh, when I first moved into this neighborhood, um, I was one of the younger kids, um, and so I was told these rumors that they were gospel, they were truth, you know, for me, um, very young. But as families began to move out, and even younger families moved in, I slowly became one of the older kids, uh, and I took it upon myself um, to spread these rumors and warn others about avoiding that house. And with that, I'm going to pause there. And can Noah come up, please? And you're going to read our passage for us today. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a, si ask a sign from the 
Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I won't ask, I won't test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, Listen, house of David, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is present and is about pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good. Before the boy yearns to reject evil and choose good, the land of two kings you dread will be abandoned. Thank you so much. I got caught up in my own story that I forgot to read scripture. <laughs> I apologize. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, so back to that little story. Um, I was with this stranger um, at the place. Um, it was the last day of school before Christmas, and my mom got a call from a number she didn't know. And it was an old man's voice. Um, he was telling my mom that his daughter, which is me, uh, dropped her school journal on her way from school um, in his front yard. And he had found uh, my mom's number written in it um, on the front cover. Now, school planners were a big deal back then, at least for my school. It, like, you would get in trouble if you didn't have a sort of planner. So I needed it back. And I was relieved when someone had found my journal until my mom told me who had found my journal. It was none other than the scary man down the cul-de-sac, and I was terrified. So with my mom at my side, uh, we went down to his house, and there I was standing outside his house, and this was the first time I had ever met this man. As soon as we found out, uh, we started talking with him, and it, it turned out that this guy was like the kindest guy I'd ever met. Like, he was so sweet. He was so, so sweet. And by actually having a conversation with him, uh, I came to learn a lot about this guy that I had apparently lived you know, by for so long. Um, about 10 years ago, he had moved into the neighborhood. He was here well before us. And he had moved in with his wife and his older kids. But a couple years later happened, and his wife had divorced him and took custody of the kids. Um, so his kids grew older, and he never just saw much of them. Kind of explains why his house was never lit up, never passed out candy. It was just him and his dog. When I encountered this man, he was nothing like I had imagined. He wasn't this big monster I had built him up to be in my mind. And uh, this made me really sick, made me feel really, really actually physically sick inside. And I wondered why? Like, why did I feel so sick um, now that I'm older? Like, why did I actually get physically sick um, realizing that he was different than I had imagined? I wonder, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, um, but I wonder um, if people just don't like to be wrong. I think that's true. Of course, people don't like to be wrong. Um, people typically assume that their perspective is always right. Um, I, I'm guilty of it, at least, and I'm sure some of us also are. Um, we'll do like mental gymnastics to assure ourselves that we are in the right and that everyone else must be therefore wrong. And then we will bias certain statistics and facts and articles to confirm 
what we uh, sometimes call our working models of reality. Uh, these models of reality are the way we perceive the world and everyone else in them. Meanwhile, we will push people or other ideas away that we deem threatening to our um, view of the world or our sense of reality. And I, when, I, when I say this, I don't necessarily want to say it's a bad thing. Um, I think in some cases these models are keeping us safe, um, sometimes. I mean, for example, as a young kid, it was probably good for me to stay clear of the mysterious man across the street if I had never met him before. So I think some of that unsureness might have been valid. But, but um, if there's anything I think we can learn from Advent, this strange and beautiful season that we are in, it's the fact that our working models of reality won't always work. They won't always be right. Each of us have our own ideas of God, of creation, of ourselves, of others, and how the world just kind of works. But Christmas, uh, this day that's coming up so soon, marks the day that the unexpected happens. That God's infinite, all-powerful love takes the form of a helpless crying, fragile baby. German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes that Advent creates people, new people. And I think this is very true because Advent propels us to reimagine the world around us. It propels us to recognize that the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others is not always what it seems. It's not always what it seems. There's always something more than meets the eye. And we're going to get it wrong from time to time. Um, and the only way to change and heal and process and reimagine the world is when we can learn to admit when we are wrong. But our uh, passage today, which Noah read for us, is Isaiah 7, 10 through 16. We find King Ahaz, um, he could not just admit that he was wrong. Our passage uh, begins in chapter 7 and verse 10, which kind of shows that we've already entered into a story that is developed way under already. It's, it's a national crisis. Um, at this point in the book of Isaiah, Israel is split into two nations. The northern kingdom, which is above, it's green, it's labeled Israel. Um, this is called Israel, whereas the southern kingdom, um, which is like a yellow, um, is called Judah. Now, Isaiah is a 8th century prophet that we've been following for the past couple weeks here, and he spoke primarily to the nation of Judah in the south. Um, and he spoke frequently to many of Judah's kings. He lived for a while, so he got to see all sorts of different kings, both good and bad, including one of the most wicked kings in all of Judah's history, King Ahaz. Now, in 2 Chronicles, um, another book of the Old Testament, um, it goes out of its way to explain just how wicked this king is. Um, he, he, this king, uh, King Ahaz, set up other altars to gods like Baal, 
and he even made human sacrifices, human sacrifices of his own children to appease gods like Molech and other gods of other foreign nations, just to appease them. Again, he is a ruthless, wicked guy, and the Bible wants us to make sure that we got that clear from multiple books of the Bible. Let us know clearly, this guy is not good. And they want to portray him often as this ruthless, cruel being. But now, in our passage, we see an almost different side of King Ahaz. He's not this ruthless, terrible person who is sacrificing his own children. He is terrified. He is hiding. He is terrified and unsure of something that, because there's a gigantic, um, a gigantic, massive threat facing his nation. Israel, which was the green one, um, the northern kingdom, which was once united to the south, and Syria, or Aram, um, which is above, are forming, forming like a coalition um, against Assyria, which is the superpower of that day. Um, they are encouraging Ahaz to join them in this coalition and are asking him to lend their armies, uh, you know, it lend Judah's armies to this rebellion. But uh, King Ahaz refuses. He knows that this will just not end well. And so the two nations respond in aggression. In 734 BCE, the troops of Israel and Aram um, invade Judah. And King Ahaz is terrified. I mean, what should King Ahaz do, right? Should he begrudgingly join this coalition, which he probably knows will fail compared to the gigantic all-star power Assyria? Or should he seek shelter under Assyria and survive? Either way, King Ahaz knows that there's, or thinks, I should say, that there's no other option but to uh, trust and negotiate military alliances. And that there's no other option but to place faith in one foreign nation and wage wars against all other foreign nations. But this is where the prophet Isaiah comes in. The prophet Isaiah comes to the king with an invitation to faith. Through the prophet, uh, God speaks so softly to this worried king. He says, ask for a sign. Throughout the Old Testament, God has given his people signs. Uh, for Noah, it was the rainbow. For Moses, there was an abundance of signs in Egypt. And yet, uh, King Ahaz of Judah refuses. The king responds like this. He says, I will not put the Lord to the test. At, at first, like that sounds a bit strange, right? But at first... That might sound a little bit righteous, you know? Um, this was a command actually given in Deuteronomy uh, 6.16, where they're told, do not test the Lord. And it's also quoted by Jesus um, in the wilderness when he's facing temptation. Do not test the Lord. So it sounds like he's a good guy, right? <laughs> but, but unlike Jesus, um, who was trying to remain faithful, Ahaz twists the scripture in a very wicked way, in order to be unfaithful. There's a reason why King Ahaz does not want a sign, and it's not because he is righteous or holier than thou and everyone else. It's because asking for a sign does not make sense in his model of reality, the way he perceives the world. 
for Ahaz, it would be just so much easier and like, dare I say, like a little bit safer, big quotations on that, uh, to trust in military alliances um, and arms instead of waiting on God's salvation. But still, <laughs> still, uh, God gives a sign to us, to him, to every single person, even will we do not ask, God still gives. And God declares, look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And that is God with us. The sign comes as a little child. <laughs> through him, though, God will be present to Israel, yes, but also to the entire world, including Ahaz's um, enemies, including the very ones that are out to get him. God with us can be either good news or bad news, depending on uh, maybe how willing you're ready to let go of this model of reality. Um, for King Ahaz's model of reality, God with us, appearing as a child, was probably not good news. Uh, King Ahaz had been through plenty of battles before, and he knows what will win wars, probably, and it's certainly not a newborn baby. I mean, how could this ever work out? How could this ever be good news? How could hope come from a female virgin, which in this society would have been considered an incredibly, incredibly vulnerable person, and through her baby, an even more, even more vulnerable person? If Ahaz was supposed to believe in the sign, this would require so much from him. This would require uh, believing that God would take the most vulnerable state imaginable to overthrow the armies of the world. It would require believing such a strong statement as that. And for King Ahaz, that sign made no logical sense. And so Ahaz just uh, refuses God's sign uh, to trust him. Instead, he, he cowers away in fear, even more fearful than he was before, and pushes anything or anyone who might threaten his false sense of uh, security. Then we find in 2 Kings 16, we see that Ahaz declares himself a slave to Assyria's king. He has decided his fate. He is going to serve Assyria. It is easier to sell himself to this big superpower instead of waiting on the salvation of God. And this decision sets the stage for not only his downfall, but the downfall of the entire country, Judah. This passage, <laughs> this passage is hard, I think, because it makes me wonder how often we choose fear over hope how often we become so married to our own models of reality or the way we perceive the world that we just refuse to accept God's message of hope. But, but God's message to Isaiah, through Isaiah, um, did not go unheard. 
700 years would pass by, like 700 years would pass by, and the people of Israel would um, go into exile uh, to Babylon and then shortly return. And then in that very same region, Judah, um, which is where he was at, uh, the same invitation to faith is given to a virgin named Mary. When the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. The Lord is with you. Lord is with you. Emmanuel. In the face of questions and doubts and frustrations, she trusts in God's model of reality instead of her own. In the face of questions and doubt from her own community, even her soon-to-be husband, Joseph, Mary decides to trust in what God has in store for her. But then... God's invitation to trust is also given to Joseph. This invitation requires a lot from Joseph as well, too. It requires him to lay down his suspicion, lay down his confusion and doubts about Mary and all of this news, and take up the responsibility of caring for the young Mary and her expecting child. And then God's invitation is given to a variety of people of all sorts of different backgrounds and identities. Uh, Just like King Ahaz was given a sign, the shepherds are told, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. But uh, unlike King Ahaz, uh, who turned away from such a sign, the shepherds say to one another, let's go. I mean, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. God's invitation to faith was not just spread to nearby shepherds, but was spread to so many others like Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, the, the Magi, who were not even Jewish either, and the angels and a plethora of animals, all of which come to recognize the Lord's coming and recognize God is with us and they gaze upon the Christ child. Finally, God's invitation to faith is given to each and every one of us. This week, we are lighting the fourth candle, which symbolizes love. It reminds us that God's infinite love was robed in the fragile, vulnerable skin of a newborn baby who was wrapped in his cloth by his mother and laid out in this scratchy, hay-filled manger in a drafty old barn in this city called Bethlehem. And in order to receive this love, we must be willing to, re- to not receive, but to release our um, models of reality and come to embrace God's reality, Emmanuel. That is, God has come as a vulnerable child that we might live. And as Christians, we proclaim this story of love and we proclaim that it is stronger than warfare, It is stronger than arms, it is stronger than disease, and it's even stronger than death itself. Certainly, this story of love is not always the easiest task to bear and believe in. 
think this Advent season, there is just so much noise that distracts us. I know for myself, there has been so much. We get so distracted by our own models of reality, the way we perceive the world. We get so caught up in defending ourselves and in our own conflicts and bickering and hostility and biases that we just completely lose sight of what Christmas and the season is all about. Gathering together, side by side, around the manger, in adoration of the Christ child. All, all of us are welcome and come to the altar and the manger as well. All, including those who we'd prefer not to see this holiday season. All, including our neighbors who we have built up to be monsters in our minds. Anticipating the manger, anticipating the unexpected, uh, requires each of us to lay to rest our assumptions of God, of ourselves, and of others. So will you join, will we join Isaiah and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and, you know, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, and the, man, the Magi, all of these people, the plethora of people, will we join them at the manger? And will we join them side by side with those who are different than us, who think, believe, and act differently than us? And are we willing to lay it all to rest?